this morning we're blessed to hear from Laura Hoy, so I'm going to ask Laura to come up. Uh, she's telling, uh, her, telling us her story of how God has worked in her life, walked with her every step of the way. And I uh, just want to say this, uh, sorry to, uh, this may embarrass you, but f- please forgive me, Laura. One of the things I appreciate most about Laura is how she has this passion for God's word, and then she allows God's word to just uh, flow out of her and uh, just impact the world around her. So uh, she's going to tell us how God's worked in her life, and we'll go from there. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Like I said in the other service, i got to get started because I'm 46 and there's a lot of, lot of story here. Uh, childhood. I was born June 13, 1965, named Laura Jean Nanke and raised in Waterloo. I'm the youngest of four children, the only daughter, and yes, I was spoiled. My dad, Larry, was a John Deere supervisor. My mom, Lois, entered nursing school when I entered preschool, and she later became a part-time LPN. I have great memories of my childhood, many of which revolve around camping. Uh, Everyone, including our big St. Bernard Alfie, would pack in the station wagon, and we'd head to a campground quite often. My school days were at Kingsley and Hoover and West High. We lived in a neighborhood with lots of kids where we played kick the can and jumped on a trampoline, and I went to a little Good News Bible Club around the corner. My dad's side of the family was quite boisterous and loud, uh, especially at gatherings where there was always an easy flow of alcohol going. There were 13 of us cousins who were close, and we had tons of fun together, and a grandmother who was the matriarchal rock of the family, raising her four children by herself, keeping the family tight, and really just a hero to all of us through her 96 years. My mom's side was a little smaller and more reserved. My mom's parents also lived in Waterloo and were an active part of our lives growing up. My maternal grandparents were from Grundy and Holland, so if you have the last name of Neeson or Harberts, then we're probably related. My mom had a sister named Ludine who lived in New York City and was a special person in my life. She died of ovarian cancer when I was 22, but while I was growing up, we wrote letters back and forth often. I lived with her for a summer in high school and worked in a small grocery store on the corner of 81st and 1st in Manhattan. And she's the one who started mailing me blank diaries when I was in third grade. I started writing in them. This marked the beginning of a lifetime of journaling for me, a discipline that God has used to help me become quite reflective along my faith journey. Every Sunday, you would have found our family parked in the same pew in the balcony of First Presbyterian Church in Waterloo. It was a generational church for us. My mom's parents went there. She grew up there. My dad grew up Catholic but switched over when he married my mom. First Presbyterian was pretty missions-oriented, so I found myself out and about in downtown Waterloo serving with my parents from an early age. God used serving experiences in my childhood to grow compassion in my heart. Those experiences helped me see from early on that there were differences between my life and others' lives. Serving helped me recognize that I was blessed to be a blessing. My whole experience of church during my childhood was that it was an intergenerational family, caring and serving for one another, caring for one another and serving. I felt known and useful at church, and through the foundation of Sunday school, I had a sense that God was good and loving. Junior high and high school years. 
I was active in athletics and student senate. I was a straight-A student and a leader in my class. And I could move in and out of diverse groups of people. Though my older brothers had stopped going to church, I continued. I went through confirmation and remained active in church and youth group through high school. I even taught kindergarten Sunday school when I was in high school, and I headed off to the Presbyterian General Assembly as a student delegate. Yet I kept my faith life quite compartmentalized from what I considered my real life. I could look back in my journals and see that I would write about God and Jesus and faith on days that I was around church. And then right next to those entries, I would journal about getting drunk or high at one of the weekend parties. Sitting in the church balcony one Sunday, we were saying a prayer in unison and speaking the words, I love you, God, with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And I recall speaking the words out loud but thinking, that's a big fat lie. And I I felt like the Spirit was drawing me to want to love him with that kind of devotion. And so when I went home, I thought I was supposed to read the Bible. And so I got the Living Bible, The Way, off my shelf, and I discovered it had a little um, chart in the back that had uh, all the chapters, which was kind of right up my organizational alley. I read an average of a chapter of the Bible a night and checked it off in the chart to keep track of my progress. I remember one of my Sunday school teachers had told me to pray for the Holy Spirit to meet me in the text and to guide me in his truth. So I did pray that a lot, and God was faithful in revealing himself and speaking to me about a relationship with him through Christ. I remember somewhere in those three years that it took to read through the Bible, I think it was the book of Acts, I got down on my knees in my room to give myself to Christ. I wish I could say my life changed radically overnight, but that didn't happen. College years. I went off to Iowa State, and I majored in elementary education. I began to go to Collegiate Presbyterian on campus. That next summer in 1984, I served at a Korean-American Presbyterian church in Anchorage, Alaska. It was labeled as a short-term mission trip where I would lead summer programs for the kids. In truth, they were really missionaries to me. I lived with five different families that summer, and I witnessed deep devotion and loyalty to Christ. The return to my sophomore year in college was a real struggle for me. I had never really had Christian community or been discipled. I was easily swayed by the college scene. I was somewhat of a chameleon, uh, seeking to fit in with whomever I was around at the time. Or as Ephesians 4 states, I was like an infant being tossed back and forth by the waves, blown about by every wind. During my junior year, another Presbyterian church in Ames called and asked if I would consider a part-time youth ministry job with their teenagers. So I changed churches, and I did. And all the while, I battled with being somewhat of a closet Christian, struggling with double-mindedness and my lack of integrity. Mike Hoy came into my life my junior year of college. He had graduated from UNI and was working in Waterloo with my sister-in-law, who had been trying to get us together on a blind date for over a year. Uh, She finally succeeded, and that date led to many dates. A year later, I I student-taught in the Canary Islands of Spain, and I did some traveling. And when I returned, Mike and I were married after my graduation from Iowa State in 1987. The early married years and God's call to ministry. After our wedding, Mike continued his work as a computer programmer, and I began to teach fifth grade in the Cedar Falls schools. I also began to volunteer with youth back at the church of my youth, First Presbyterian, but Mike and I attended Orchard Hill Church. Mike had grown up in Des Moines, and lo and behold, his youth director was none other than Ed Baker. 
So uh, it was a real natural fit for Mike to go to Orchard when Ed came to Orchard. In 1990, Mike and I up and we moved to the island of Guam for two years. We had friends teaching there. I taught fifth grade there. Mike installed computer systems. And we could write some volumes of grand adventures of island life and new friends, classroom tales, scuba diving, and travel around the Pacific and Asia. In the spring of 92, while we were still on Guam, Mike got an offer for a flying job back in Waterloo at McCandless Aircraft Sales. Being a skydiving instructor and a man of extreme adventures, my husband had gotten his private pilot's license and was going to work on their computers and ferry small airplanes for the company. I had an offer from First Presbyterian back home to come and work half-time as a youth director. I was beginning to sense a sense in my spirit a strong and compelling call from God to go into youth ministry, but it did not make sense to me as I was on the education track now, so I came back and I taught at Hanson. I had not yet really learned that God's call many times does not make sense from a worldly point of view, but I do remember signing my contract back at Hanson and telling my principal, Jim, I think I'm doing the wrong thing. I think God's calling me into ministry. And he replied, Laura, if you have the call of Moses, we will end up losing you. 1992 to 93 was a turning point in my life. I was 28 years old. I had a bright sixth grade class at Hanson, but everything else seemed dark. I was having a tough time transitioning back from Guam. Mike was traveling a couple weeks out of each month, ferrying very small airplanes across very big oceans. Also, God was not letting go of me, and I could not go to church without crying. I wasn't quite understanding the call at that time or my whole resistance to it, but in looking back, I know that God was calling me to more than a vocational change. I had messed around with, uh, with being kind of quasi-casually committed to him for several years, failing a lot of faith and integrity and obedience checks. Also that year, three marriages in my immediate family were facing pain and strain and struggle, and ours was one of them. Mike and I held on by the threat of commitment, and we began counseling. I also waved the white flag of surrender to God, and First Presbyterian called me soon after to ask if I would apply for a full-time children's and youth position. I did, and I began on staff there soon as, as soon as school was out in 1993. The next four years were full of learning and growth for me in my life and relationships. It was a rich period of time with God and with people. Spiritual disciplines became a regular part of my life. I was hungry for and loving the study of God's word. Mike and I were learning to grow a different marriage. As a youth director, I was beginning to know and love a lot of youth and families. I took students out into our community to serve quite often and realized that serving seemed to awaken us. It helped us become aware of the needs in the world outside of our familiar routines and comfort zones. It stretched us. It stretched us beyond ourselves. God used serving to help shape the worldview of our youth and to grow us spiritually. And God used serving to help scripture come alive as we read about Jesus who spent his life serving and sacrificing. And as we read verse after verse about a God who cares deeply for those who are marginalized and oppressed a God who works passionately to set things right through Jesus. In 1997, Mike and I, oops, new category, pain. In 1997, Mike and I got pregnant, but at full term, just a few weeks from our due date, our baby died and was stillborn. 
Delivering our son Aaron was the most bittersweet experience of our lives. Being flooded with this amazing parental love the first time you hold your firstborn baby and experiencing the deepest anguish ever known, all wrapped in the same instant in time. We had to say hello and goodbye simultaneously. The hardest thing ever was the drive home from Covenant without our child. We literally did not know what to do with our physical bodies when we walked through our front door. So we laid on the couch and we watched seven hours of the trilogy of Back to the Future to try to escape before we had to get up and begin writing out a funeral service rather than birth announcements. I spent the next several weeks making an X on the calendar each day because the days were so painful. I could not wait for them to pass. We were surrounded by the love of family and neighbors and friends those weeks after. I took six weeks off of work, and I spent a lot of time with Mike and a lot of time in my living room recliner with God and his word. I went back to work, and in a matter of just weeks, our church, which had had trouble brewing for a while, moved out into all-out conflict and division. There were people, myself included, that were not supportive of how the church was being led by a relatively new pastor, but we handled our concerns very poorly. Our pastor resigned. It was ugly. So many leadership mistakes were made. Devastation ensued, and it kept getting worse when I didn't actually think it could get worse. I hung on for six months into chaos, and then I resigned in the summer of 1998. Being a part of such church conflict and witnessing so much spiritual and emotional upheaval in a people that I had grown up with and loved a great deal impacted and wounded my heart deeply. After leaving, I again spent a lot of time with Mike and a lot of time with God in my living room recliner. In silence and solitude, God dealt with me about finding my identity solely in Christ. He spent time loving and healing me through a period of failure and loss. I also sought out and found refuge at Orchard Hill Church. New beginnings. Mike and I found out in the fall of 1998 that I was pregnant with twins. Nathan and Sarah were born, and 18 months after Aaron's death, I again cried my eyes out on the same drive home from Covenant, but this time in gratitude for the two healthy little peanuts in the back seat. That beat-up recliner of mine was now not only a solitude post, but a baby station where many, many hours a day were spent rocking and nursing and loving babies. While staying home, as our twins grew, I began to volunteer with student ministry at Orchard Hill. In addition to this, I had the most unexpected and surprising faith crisis that would kind of come and go for about two years of my life. It started when I found myself crying incessantly through a talk that Dave Bartlett and Kurt Vanderweel gave on predestination and free will. I thereafter decided I should read a theology book on the Reformed doctrine of predestination, but it messed with me so badly. I could not refute the interpretation of scripture or the arguments that I was reading, but at the same time, I could not find a loving and merciful good God in the midst of it. And it just threw me into a period of questioning and hostility against God that sometimes left me feeling hopeless and desperate. A few times, my anger was such that Mike thought God might literally strike me with lightning if I wasn't careful. 
And I even at one point told God that I was going to prove that I could walk away from him, which I tried, but he wouldn't go away. And so all I could hear was his spirit saying to me, Laura, do you trust that I'm good? I remember that I was teaching 20-minute openings for teenagers on Sunday mornings each week, and for the life of me, I did not know what I could teach through that period. In his grace, God directed me toward the wisdom books of the Bible, and it was partly out of the teaching from these that God used to bring me along. There wasn't one clear moment that the crisis was resolved for me, but rather a whole host of wrestling matches and encounters with God that I believe has led me to a place of deeper trust in God's sovereignty and his mystery, a greater awareness of my own control issues and God complex, and a simpler and purer faith in his love and his goodwill toward humankind. When our twins were in preschool, I gave one morning a week volunteering at the House of Hope, a transitional housing program for single homeless moms and their children located in the Walnut neighborhood of Waterloo just a few doors down from First Presbyterian. As I began to get to know some of the women living at the House of Hope, I began to learn about the realities and the complexities of poverty. It was at this point that God began to show me some new road signs along the missional journey. One day, as I was taking donated coats out of the back of my van to take inside the House of Hope, I witnessed a fairly violent verbal fight going on between two women. It was getting extremely close to physical violence, and I stood there with coats in my arms trying to decide what I should do. All of a sudden, I had a vision play out in my mind. It was a scene from the movie Titanic, toward the end where the people were in the freezing water, barely clinging to chunks of iceberg. I pictured some of the moms that I had met at House of Hope in the water, holding on to icebergs by their fingernails, while I was there with my arms full of coats, throwing them out to the women and calling, keep warm, just as they were about to drown. That was a defining moment for me. I knew that many of the women did not have Jesus nor a network of friends and people around them that worked in favor for them. And I was beginning to understand how relationship, uh, relationships were a critical factor for change. At that time, I still believed that I had most everything to give in the relationship and not as much to gain. But nevertheless, there was a new level of understanding for me at that time. I began to see how important it was to address the needs of the whole person, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Addressing only material needs without addressing the whole person does not often make for growth. As I stuck around the House of Hope, I saw more and more of the unhealthy side of serving and giving outside of the context of relationship. I watched how well-intended charity often produced more dependency and kept receivers down because it did nothing to affirm dignity or to empower people to live as loved and gifted children of God. A secondary call. When Sarah and Nathan entered kindergarten in 2004, I came on staff part-time at Orchard Hill Church in student ministry. About 18 months into my work, I recognized a familiar disorientation and call process from God. For over a year, I lived in questions and fog and a deeper inner journey with Christ. I knew the call for me was missional in nature, but I also knew that it would not look like a traditional local missions job at a church. As Orchard Hill allowed freedom for me to lean into my passions and gifts and calling, God has been revealing his path for me over the past five years. He's taken me back yet again into that walnut neighborhood, this time as Orchard Partners and his friends with Harvest Vineyard. 
and he's taken me uh, to be kind of as a catalyst, an organizer, a link um, for Christian community to develop, and a visionary for holistic neighborhood revitalization. In the past five years, I've moved from a missions to to a missions with mindset because changed people and changed relationships will only come from a we and not an us-them. I'm learning firsthand how much we mutually need one another to keep breaking down barriers that keep everyone from growing and from realizing life in God's kingdom way. It is messy and it is not easy, but I believe God has moved me to this role here at Orchard Hill for the very reason to encourage others to step out of the boat into the mess a bit so that we can learn and travel this kingdom road together and God can do a work in us and in our neighbors, helping us all to move toward wholeness and reconciliation. Learnings. As I have looked back on this narrative, I've asked God what he's wanted to teach me through the process. One thing for sure is the Bible. I look back on my life. The times that I experience God's power and spirit the most are when I'm immersed in his word, soaking my soul in it. Certainly, God uses many other books to teach me, but God strongly reminds me of the large and straight-up diet I need of his powerful and life-changing word in my life. A look back also makes me so grateful for my family. God teaches me many spiritual truths through them, and I feel I have come to better understand him and myself and others through my family. Also, as I look back, I'm so grateful that the God of the universe who can go warp speed is willing to crawl one mile an hour with me so faithfully. There's a saying, it took just one day for the Israelites to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And that's been true of me. As you look back at my story, you can see that I'm often delayed in captivity and that change is a multi-layered, slow process for me. And I'm eternally grateful for God's grace in that process. Another thing I've been learning as I look back into my life is that though there is value in leaning into our strengths and our gifts, it's really been my weakness and pain and brokenness that God has chosen to teach and grow and lead and use me. This should not be so surprising to me. There's really no point of entry for God other than the point of our brokenness and our repentance. It's in these places of struggle and of need that I think people really most resonate with anyway. And what greater hope can I offer them but for people to see Christ's strength and brilliance breaking through and shining through the cracks of my life. It reminds me of a story that I will close with. I keep, oops, about six years ago, Mike took off work and led our family on a great geode expedition in western Illinois for a day. We asked around where we might hunt. We ended up walking a dry creek bed. We were not finding anything, and we didn't know if we would. But then we came upon this area that had some ankle-deep water, and we started finding geodes by the dozens. Mike's dad, who had a master's in geology, was with us, and he was our official rock splitter. So he'd crack one open after the other. And on the inside of these very unattractive, dirty rocks, were these beautiful, shiny crystals. And our daughter, Sarah, would yell, Jackpot! It's the winner! Every time one was broken open. I keep one of those geodes on my desk at home as it's such a great reminder to me of a truth that God has repeatedly played out in my life. 
that it's always been in God breaking me that he's helped me discover the jackpot. And though my will hates being broken sometimes and my false self resists dying and the evil one loves to try to distract me, I have experienced and know one greater who keeps recovering me and filling me and showing me what makes for life and beauty. So I'm going to keep at it, surrendering and committing to Christ, allowing and trusting him to change me so that I will more freely and fully receive his love and more freely and fully give his love away. Thank you.